Salofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuki, coming up. This is one of the worst instances of killings that I've seen in the last 10 years. More than 50 lives lost in what's been described as PNG's worst massacre in the last decade. Also, the New Zealand Salvation Army releases its 17th State of the Nation report. And later... This country has a very proud competitive history, qualifying for the FIFA Futsal World Cup. Australia's futsal team arrive in Solomon Islands, hoping to spark more interest in the game. The death toll in what's been described as Papua New Guinea's worst massacre in the last decade is expected to climb with more than 50 deaths already recorded. Acting Police Commander for Inga, Patrick Becker, told Lydia Lewis that the ongoing tribal fighting resulted in the deaths. He says it's a very serious situation. We are still conducting a search to uh, retrieve the body uh, people killed in the battlefield. Uh, yesterday we we called it 26 bodies. And for more on this, Lydia spoke with our PNG correspondent Scott Waide. She began by asking him how he would describe the incident. This is one of the worst instances of killings that I've seen in the last 10 years. Uh, the last one that I, I saw previously was the one in the southern uh, in the Ella province where. 16 people were, 16 women and one child were killed. Uh, and that, that was when we went there, when I went there personally to see it. Uh, this one, the number is uh, very high. I, I haven't seen that kind of number in, in the last 10 years. Uh, there, collectively, the number would have been, will be higher. But for 52 in one instance, uh, yeah, very high. And who have you spoken with on the ground? I understand you've spoken with one tribesman who was involved uh, so far. Who else have you spoken with and what did they say? Yeah, I've spoken to one tribesman whose family is involved in the fighting. Um, And he told me that 25 dead bodies were retrieved from the bushes yesterday and late in the afternoon with help from police and military and 27 more were recovered this morning. They've uh, taken the bodies to uh, Wabeg. Um, and in terms of the number of women and children affected, there, there's no accurate figure to say how many women and children have been affected by it, but the number will be higher, uh, as is usually the case. So the number of men who were, uh, whose bodies were retrieved was is 52. As of, as of this morning. And what do we know about the women and children? Yeah, there's, they're obviously affected. Uh, there's very little information at the moment that I'm, I'm able to gather at the moment because a lot of the focus is on, on, the, on the men who have been fighting and who have been killed. Have any of the men been taken into custody? What is the process after such a horrific incident like this? Yeah, from the police front, it's it's really difficult to have people arrested uh, in situations like this. And, and, you know, from my experience over the last 20 years, it has always been difficult to go into tribal fighting areas and have the community give up the people who are actually responsible for the killings because if you arrest on one side, you have to arrest on the other side as well. Uh, and given the fact that uh, a lot of the tribesmen are armed, uh, it, it 
puts a it's a really difficult situation for police and military to you know try to contain the situation firstly and then have those people arrested uh, usually the process has been to involve uh, political leaders who will be involved in the negotiation or community leaders church elders and then uh, seek the voluntary uh, surrender of people who are involved in in the in the killings and in the in the in the violence generally do you know more about what weapons were involved there's been talk around them being homemade most of the weapons used in the killings are military weapons they uh, and and the names they they mentioned to me was you know israeli made galils uh, us made m16s slrs uh, one bullet for an M16 is being sold for 30 kina, depending on the demand. It can go up to 50 kina for one bullet. Uh, a shotgun that was uh, a shotgun was also used, as as I'm being told. Uh, and one shotgun pill, uh, one shotgun shell uh, costs about 70, 75 kina for one. So. It's a, there's a huge black market attached to this tribal fighting that's happening. Um, one assault rifle costs upwards of uh, 30,000 kina. So it, it's a yeah, very complex web of uh, people who benefit from this tribal fighting as well. And all of this is on the backdrop of instability in government with an upcoming motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister. But but what does this mean in the grand scheme of things with this political instability and obviously the riots that happened at the start of the year? This will definitely be used as a point of contention by the opposition because, as is usually the case, any any. Uh, violence in the islands, any violence in any parts of the country go leading towards the vote of no confidence is always used as ammunition to uh, take on the government uh, by the opposition or any any other parties who has uh, disagreements with the the ruling government. So that's definitely going to be something of discussion on the floor of parliament during the vote of no confidence session if it comes to uh, fruition. And we've already seen lots of discussion about the lack of employment. Is this something that comes into play in a situation like this as well? Yeah, the provincial police commander has stated very quite clearly in a statement that a lot of the people who were killed in this violent incident were people who were hired to kill. Uh, so it, that's from from the police, and it's it's no secret that uh, people have you know offered their services as quote mercenaries in in tribal fighting, and that's uh, also you we, we've seen that in the elections where uh, people like that were used in intimidation, and it's a sad situation, an unfortunate in, uh, turn of events, and it's it's escalating uh, by the year. And as simply as you can put it, why did this break out or how did this escalation ensue? Yeah, it, it's difficult to, you know, summarize it in a few words, but it, it's, uh, it, it's, there's been a long-standing feud between different clans and it's, you know, trying to get to the bottom of it is you'd, you'd have to weave through, you know, the complexities of tribal politics and and. Uh, violence that has happened in the past, uh, last year, as as with this case, 
the person I spoke to said that this was related to an incident last year, and the incident last year would have been related to something that happened previously. So it's an ongoing uh, cycle of violence that uh, is really, really difficult to stop uh, within the communities. As the Western world looks on and and sees the headline of massacre in Papua New Guinea, what do people on the ground want want the world to know in a situation like this? Yeah, it's it's a Papua New Guinea is a complex country, and we, as you know, we've got eight hundred languages. We've got a very a myriad of different cultures. The Enga province is just one province. And my culture, uh, for myself, totally different from Engan culture. So to have all of the cultures in Papua New Guinea, you know, lumped into one and uh, this, to, to describe Papua New Guinea as a violent country is, is quite unfair. That, that's firstly, uh, first thing I'd like to say. The other thing is the, within Enga itself, the manner in which you know there's a there are systems of governance, traditional governance in within the Enga province uh, and within the tribes and clans that uh, uh, contribute to this fighting. In order to understand the violence, one has to really go down to the ground and and speak to the tribal leaders, speak to those who are involved in it to understand the rationale behind the killings, uh, and then work backwards from there in order to have a a, a clear understanding of what's happening on the ground and who's affected and why they're actually doing it. Um, there are, you know, modern elements at play, like uh, modern weapons, military-type weapons that are used in the tribal fighting, uh, along with traditional weapons. And that has put a new spin on, uh, a, a, yeah, a new, a new spin on the level of violence. Uh, the use of mercenaries is a new thing that we've seen in the last 20 years. Uh, so all of that put together adds to the complexity of the tribal violence, uh, of the tribal uh, landscape that exists in the Anga province. The Federated States of Micronesia's president says the nation is barely hanging on because the compacts of free association have not yet been approved. The agreements grant the U.S. military access to compact or free association nations, which are given financial assistance in return. Palau, Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia, in a letter penned to the United States Senate, says delays are causing uncertainty. FSM President Wesley Semina told Caleb Fotheringham, there'll be economic and social instability if the compacts are not passed in time. Well, our current situation right now is that we're barely hanging on, and that is simply because of the uh, continuing resolutions that the United States Congress has uh, adopted to continue a stream of funding for uh, its own operation, which includes us, the uh, FAS countries. So to that uh, extent, we are uh, grateful that we are still receiving funding Although the funding is not uh, at the same level as that would be in our new uh, agreement with the United States. Last time you spoke with RNZ Pacific, you said FSM was starting to fall down a fiscal cliff. Have you fallen yet? What's the situation? At this uh, moment, uh, because of the non-approval of our uh, compact, uh, 
uh, agreement. So we are hanging, uh, hanging on, on there. We are hanging on the cliff, but haven't fallen yet. But uh, that we don't know. Uh, we're still uh, uh, depending on uh, what uh, the U.S. Congress will do in terms of providing funding uh, to our uh, governments. And in saying that, we are uh, worried that the uh, deadlines for those uh, continuing resolutions, which are March 1st and March 8th, are approaching fast. And if the U.S. Congress cannot agree on uh, providing further continuing resolution funding, then, of course, we will fall off the cliff. And that's what's worrisome to us right now. We're uh, really uh, worried that uh, without approval of the compact to make our funding more uh, permanent, then uh, uh, we are facing that uh, uh, fiscal cliff. <laughs> uh, what would falling off this fiscal cliff look like? Oh, it's, uh, I cannot even imagine what it would be like. I know it would be very uh, disastrous to our uh, operations because uh, while our national government would be okay, our four states uh, would depend uh, largely on the uh, combat funding, will not be able to sustain their operations. And that would create both economic and social instability, and not to mention political instability. And that's what's worrisome to uh, leaders in our uh, nation, that the lack of funding would create that kind of instability, especially in our four states, which make up our nation, our national uh, government. So we are very much worried about that. What are the main financial challenges the FSM faces right now? Right now, uh, of course, the challenge is in uh, uh, our uh, revenue sources. Uh, as you know, uh, 70, about 70 or more percent of our revenues uh, for the four states come from the compact funding. And if that doesn't, uh, you know, if that's not continued, then, of course, we will have to find other means of financing our state's governments. And uh, right now we're looking at uh, all kinds of options uh, on how to do that. You were saying before that you were hoping that the compacts will be approved in March, obviously coming up pretty soon. Are you feeling confident that they will be approved? Confident? Well, I'm not sure about uh, confident, but uh, I am hopeful. I am hopeful that the U.S. Congress will see the need uh, for them to do their part in approving our uh, uh, contract agreements because we have done our parts. We have approved it as required by our agreements, but we're now just waiting for the United States uh, Congress to do its part to approve it and provide, of course, provide the funding for our uh, operations. What would be your message to the U.S.? Well, my message to U.S. is that uh, we are uh, a patient people, we uh, a patient government. We uh, understand uh, their processes, but uh, we hope they will also understand that they have just uh, celebrated the second anniversary of their uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, and we are uh, very much part of that. 
So I hope uh, they can uh, be reminded that uh, the FAS countries are just as much part of their Indo-Pacific strategy as other uh, partners that they have in this uh, region. So we would uh, just ask that the U.S. Congress would continue its uh, prioritization of the approval of the uh, compact of free association agreements so that we can have much more uh, continuity, predictability, and uh, in the stream of funding for our uh, governments. The New Zealand Salvation Army has released a 17th State of the Nation report. The report assesses social outcomes across the following areas, children and youth, work and incomes, housing, crime and punishments, and social hazards. Joining me is the report's co-author and the Salvation Army social policy analyst, Ana Ika. Kia ora, Ana. The Salvation Army recently released its State of the Nation report. Can you talk me through about the report's theme, Ngā Tukunga Iho, the things we inherit? Why was that chosen as the theme? Yeah, um, well, the State of the Nation, we release really a kind of like a report card. And I guess uh, our theme this year, Ngā Tukunga Iho, um, was we were thinking about it as a benchmark uh, for our new government because ultimately the successes that have been highlighted in the report they can't claim, uh, nor they c- can they uh, be discredited for, I guess, a lot of the failures, a lot of the areas that have been declining. And so um, the theme is, um, is yeah, the things we hear is, is basically to show that this is the benchmark that um, our government will be working from and also just to highlight some of the areas that have improved that we would build upon them um, and the areas that have been declining that we would have worked together to be able to address those areas. It's interesting that you brought up the new government, and I'll come back to you later on, um, but what does this report tell us about Pacific communities in Aotearoa? Are things improving? Yeah, it, there's a, it, it's a generalised overview of the whole country, but we have highlighted um, disparities that um, occur in Pacific communities, um, particularly with Māori and North Pacifica. One of the areas that is of concern and has been I guess for the past um, five years, is that when we're looking at child poverty, um, that has declined um, over the past since 2018, um, when it first we start, first started measuring it. However, when we're looking at Pacifica children, um, it hasn't it hasn't improved for Pacifica children as much as it has for other uh, ethnic groups, and that's really concerning given that we have such a young population. Um, if you're looking, if you break it down and you're looking at all the ethnic groups that they measure in regards to child poverty, everyone well, everyone has improved um, in regards to children living in material hardship, whereas if we look at Pacifica children, um, the number of Pacifica children in material hardship has actually increased, and so um, that's really concerning. So material hardship is like going without a doctor's visit or a dentist. Um, visit or going without nutritious food or not being able to afford clothing. So so those basic necessities that's needed are just for everyday living. And why do you think material hardship for Pacifica people, why has that gotten worse? I think it's an, an array of reasons. Um, I think uh, uh, one of the reasons is we're not employed um, in areas uh, that often bring in high incomes. Incomes have increased in general, but in, to keep up with inflation, it hasn't kept up enough. I um, mean, so I think that's one of the concerns is that uh, our Pacifica communities are just not um, employed in areas where we're getting paid adequately. Um, if we're going to talk about um, the pay, we also look in one of the chapters, working incomes, 
around uh, gender equity and the gender pay equity um, in particular. And so one of the areas is for 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 a male, the median um, hourly wage there is $33. But the lowest paid, uh, I guess, group um, that we looked at is actually Pacifica women. And our um, median hourly rate is about $28. So that's a significant difference between the median uh, for males in general. Uh, for um, Māori wahine, it's about $28. And I think ten cents, and so um, yeah, and so that just highlights, I guess, the the inequities there in regards to income when it comes to our Pacifica families and being able to provide adequate, you know, financial support to meet material needs for our families uh, that a lot of Pacifica communities do face. With these reports, do you feel like a broken record sometimes? It must be frustrating having to explain the stats and talk about hardships. Yeah, absolutely. It is a bit of a broken record, but, you know, the the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And so if we don't continue to highlight these challenges and continue to highlight these issues, then nothing will be done about them. And I know it's, it's um, it's quite disheartening every time we show up with another report. It's always... Um, negative, 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 but we need to continue to push um, the challenges to the forefront so that something can be done with, about it because the Salvation Army is a social service, so we we often do see the challenges and issues before you know before data is released or before the data shows the picture. Um, so these numbers mean a lot more to us that you know their names and their faces and their families and communities that come through our doors every day. I mean, so it's important for us not to just be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, but to be able to push some changes at the top so that our families aren't falling into, I guess, the desperate numbers that we report on in the state of the nation. Now, earlier on, um, you mentioned that the report is a benchmark for the current government. So how confident are you that this government will be able to turn things around? I do recall in our last interview that you weren't particularly impressed with the National Party proposing sanctions for the beneficiaries? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've tried to highlight in this report is areas that have improved. And if I can look at Māori wellbeing, uh, uh, just to, to highlight this, when we're looking at um, Māori rangatahi in Kurakaupapas or, or Te Reo Māori schools, um, they perform at the same level um, as rest of the mainstream schools. Whereas if you're looking at rangatahi Māori in state schools, there's a significant disparity there. So I guess what we're, what we're trying to highlight with this report is that there are things that have improved and how do we how you know how do we build on that how do we replicate those and a lot of the a lot of what we're trying to highlight is that not everyone fits the same mold and so there needs to be alternative approaches and I guess um, when I spoke to you last time around that the elections and the campaigns was that they were providing a really oversimplified solution to try and address a really complex problem and I guess that's why we're trying to highlight that there are alternative approaches that meet different community needs and if we work on those then we'll be able to lift everyone out of the hardships that we're seeing on the front lines as opposed to just, you know, tr- trying to provide a one-fit, you know, a one-stop shop um, to be able to address everybody, then that doesn't work. And, um, you know, we, we know that that doesn't work. So there needs to be, I guess, a, a myriad of solutions to be able to address, you know, the communities that, um, that are the most at risk, which is often our Pacific communities and our Māori communities. The Australia Futsal Rules are touring the Solomon Islands the next nine days. 
while their main target is to have some much-needed games before they compete at the Asian Confederation Cup. They also hope they can ignite more interest in the next generation of futsal players in the Solomon Islands. The two sides are booked for three test matches. The second time, they'll be competing against each other, following last year's 2-1 win record for the futsal rules. Elisa Tora has the story. Kirun Lili. Football Australia's general manager, strategic projects and international partnerships says the Honiara visit is exciting for them. And we're here in Honiara uh, as part of the Pacific Oz Sports Futsal Series, uh, an initiative that's supported by the Australian government through Pacific Oz Sports. So this is a progression from uh, a three-match series that we had uh, with the Solomon Islands Kuru Kuru uh, in June, July of 2023. Uh, and now we've had an opportunity to, to come over to Honiara, play three matches against them. Lily says they hope that young local fans in Honiara will get the time to watch the three matches and be inspired to take up the spot. Uh, Maybe it's an opportunity to connect a little bit more directly with that moment and and feel inspired. I know this country has a very proud competitive history, uh, qualifying for the FIFA Futsal World Cups, uh, really pushing teams, very, very good competitors on the field. Um, And so maybe this this series can uh, also help uh, inspire the the next generation of, of futsal players Futsal Rules head coach Miles Downey says the Kurukuru side has always been a tough opponent to play against. So for our players to be tested before going into the Asian Cup qualifiers was was essential. And off the back of that, we were able to qualify for the Asian Cup. So for, for us, the Solomon's matches are always crucial to our, to our preparation. And we'd love for this to be a regular thing each year. Touring captain Shervin Adeli respects the Kurukuru players and believes the hosts are exciting opponents. We, we had the, the three games back in, back in Sydney. So yeah, looking forward to, to have another uh, tough, tough competition here in Solomon Island. Like I said, we've, we've always had good uh, games against them. They've some, got some really good players. You know, we, we expect a good match and, and their the style is exciting to watch and, and be and, and play against. So, yeah, for us, we're looking for a good uh, preparation for us leading into the Asian Cup. The Kurukurus had held the futsal rules to a 1-1 draw on July 1, but lost two games, 3-2 and 5-3 respectively, in last year's Test Series. Local Honiara futsal fans can watch the teams in action on February 21st, 23rd and the 25th at the Friendship Hall. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnddi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple and iHeartRadio. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fast Week 4.